Hello, you're listening to Consuming Culture. I'm Kat McShane, I'm a journalist and filmmaker, and this podcast is all about how and why culture gets made, told through the eyes of the people who make it. Sounds simple, right? Well, I'm hoping this series gives some unique insights into what it means to be an artist when the big issues of the day, like wealth inequality, advances in technology, and people-powered social movements, are fundamentally altering the way culture is made, consumed, and valued. And I was like, I need something different that is going to be not about this pressure to complete this thing, but that is going to involve me loving it. And actually, when I discovered, you know, fandom, it was about this investment of doing something out of complete pleasure. Um, that was the thing that really motivated me. And I thought, what about, you know, engaging with that more in terms of my own practice you know whatever you're kind of whatever is kind of fascinating you or obsessive obsessing you in that moment you can kind of engage with that thing and instead of having this kind of shame around um some of those fan processes particularly you know fascination with like for example other artists or things that exist already and not wanting to you know be an imitator of those things or like you know, not be an original, which is, um, instead we might like legitimately go there as a fan and, you know, and work with that content and actually like allow that process of, uh, desire to be, to be part of it rather than kind of almost pretend that it's not there. Right. Um, so for me, I'm frustrated a bit by like, you know, some of the, kind of histories of critical and conceptual artworks, which seem to be like completely removed from the human subject's own relationship. But there's always a personal desire there, even if it is about something much more broader, there's always this personal desire or obsession with something that is often goes unacknowledged in those works. So instead, I want to like bring that to the fore in some ways. Instead, it made you feel like you could go back and reflect more on sort of earlier uh, exhibitions that you created um, and your motivations behind that. Yeah. When I, when I came to fandom, I hadn't realized that I'd been working as a fan already for, you know, for all these years, I'd made, made a series of works um, called I want to be in that show or I want to be in that film, which were basically, um, yeah, uh, performances where I created performances that I wanted to be in. Some of those were performances from like a history of performance art that I kind of re- reenacted or remixed. And some of them were 
total fictions about performances that never happened. But they were kind of like I created those so that they could happen in some ways. Oh my god, you were shipping. Um, you were shipping before you came to shipping on the internet. Yeah, exactly. So I'd always been shipping these artists. And, you know, I remember being really motivated by um, finding this quote from uh, about John Cage, um, the artist, and Merce Cunningham, who were in a relationship together. And uh, it said, um, uh, I cook and Merce does the dishes. And this was a quote from John Cage. Um, and I just found that opened up so much for me around those artists and their works and their oofs. <laughs> I was just like, suddenly I've got this insight into their private romantic relationship. And that's like really fascinated. And that's really impacted my whole relationship to them. I was also really interested in how that was a very domestic scenario and how, you know, later in, in reading a lot of fan fictions, a lot of fan fiction operates around um, very uh, domestic relationships and kind of, in some ways, very like normative relationships. Uh, you know, uh, I'm really interested in a genre of, of fan fiction called curtain fic, which is about characters going shopping for curtains. <laughs> What is that obsession about? Why is it why is it in the domestic realm so often? You know, a lot a lot of this work is a kind of aspirational work, right? So it's an aspiration or a fantasy that operates also within like the, the normative capitalist fantasy of, you know, the heterosexual uh marriage relationship um and the consumer content and lifestyle that we are, you know. Uh, kind of uh, pushed to kind of engage with or like want to live, right? So it, in that sense, it kind of takes those like desires that are produced within the capitalist construct of, you know, uh, domesticity in its very like heteronormative sense. But it kind of in the process messes with it slightly because suddenly we have Louis and Harry from One Direction uh, going shopping for curtains and Harry is pregnant um, and expecting their third child. So this is like a slightly rearranged, although still very normative mar narrative because they're still very, ma you know, they're still married and they're still, and I'm really fascinated by that. And I think, you know, um, I, I think that there's a lot of potential in that for like sub subversion and reworking and recreating your own kind of narratives out of also the existing narrative, domestic narrative that is pushed onto us through, through capitalism as well. So it's not just about recreating one direction content. It's also about in through that process, recreating, you know, the capitalist cap capitalist reality as well. So you know, and I really do believe that there's something, some greater potential there. For me, it's about the fact that if we use Larry Stylinson as an example, you know, whether the narrative represents, you know, or, or continues to represent like a capitalist ideal or not, what for me is interesting is the fact that 
the fun begins with One Direction. They become focused and fascinated with Louis and Harry and their relationship and what happens. They invent Larry Stylinson. And then One Direction are out the window and they're just interested and concerned in what Louis and Harry do. And Larry Stylinson becomes this new world that they create and this new narrative that is created out of that and, and One Direction that is marketed to them is kind of forgotten about. It's just there in the background, right? Um, and for me, that is where there is an opportunity for communities to, to imagine and create their own worlds, rules, narratives and things, you know. So I just was thinking whether when you began to explore this world and how it, your practice might also uh, change as a result of it, whether it's taking you back to your own childhood and whether you could remember as a child also uh watching television shows that you had reimagined uh, that would be more suitable for your own fantasies and desires. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been, it's, I also, I always find my creative process somehow is about tapping into those feelings that I had. You know, I found my teenage years to be like super creative, right? In the sense that and that was about this kind of like, even like going into your bedroom and listening to your like Alanis Morissette album or my Bjork album or whatever. It was about this beginning to create like my sense of identity through what I listened to, you know, and then how I made my own distinction from the music I listened to, to like what other people listened to. Um, and there was something, you know, about the the boredom of that as well. I just remember the boredom also of being younger um, and where I come from in South Wales, there wasn't actually that much to do. So it was really about, yeah, a lot of it was about fantasizing and shipping. And even though I wasn't involved in fandom in that way, um, this was, you know, the kind of like theater in my mind. This is what was happening in all of these things in some ways. And that is always like, driven me in some ways so um so do you think that you growing up queer in south wales also allows you to understand the mindset of fan culture yeah more? absolutely yeah that's totally yeah that's totally where those things relate i think um and like i already know that if i was like growing up uh you know in 2013 uh as a teenager i would have absolutely been like on tumblr doing all of that stuff at, at that time <laughs> what is it that artists can learn from fan culture so like the fan riot project basically was a complete exploration around uh what both fans can learn from you know artists and what artists can le learn from fans and where the, there is like a blur in in those things yeah so i set out at the start to be like i'm going to be just a fan for a year and what does it mean to just become a fan of other artists and get involved in just loving that and thinking about what the community could be around we can create around that um and inevitably obviously i ended up creating stuff through being a fan because that's kind of what i'd always already been doing in some ways um so i think in terms of what like artists and fans can learn from each other um, I think for artists, it's about like 
rather than this like really like conceptually distanced approach to material it's about like this feeling of being like really involved right and really attached to something in a way that you could like really love it um but also you could really hate something and that can motivate you to to create right and respond um and there's something about that like impassioned um attachment especially when that's done as a group right that has like kind of revolutionary potential so that's basically what i'm interested in underneath all of this is the fact that fandom works as a community of people you know moved by like a strong and intense desire um and that is often a a strong and intense desire from something that's that isn't present in in the dominant culture it isn't present in already in uh the tv series uh or or the film or the band right so instead they use their desires and fantasies to reimagine that thing um so that that's kind of what i'm interested in there and then in terms of like what fans can learn from artists i think you know in some ways i think fandom also you know has its own categories and has and has its own kind of uh disciplines and genres and ways of working but i think like they can look to like also art and artists in ways of like exploring different forms so that not everything ends up just being like a piece of fan art like a doodle sketch or a fan fiction but could actually become like an amalgamation of those things like artists explore form more so I'm also interested in how in this relationship between fandom and, and art practice is, is blurred more that both in fan worlds and in the art world, there's, there's like more exploration of like different kinds of form also that might happen. I was also wondering what, um, what an artist and a fan might have in common in terms of their mentality. Cause it strikes me that actually that, single-mindedness that attention to detail that obsessiveness is a shared mindset yeah absolutely so you know fans are um and artists are often collectors yeah or they often uh not all artists but it's it's you know quite a predominant method that artists will become um fascinated or obsessed with something and that is like the thing that will will drive them to like investigate or explore that subject right and in some ways we we always have to have this like strong fascination with something in order to to create create our work so i was interested in what it means to like turn that up to not you know we could turn it up on a scale to being you know really intense or really removed in fact, maybe what we can all learn from fandom and not just uh, not just artists is this idea of of time and the amount of time that it can give you and what can come out of that. My whole interest in fandom is around also this idea between like what is productive and what is unproductive or non-productive. And I think there are both productive and non-productive aspects to fandom. Now, the productive aspects of fandom have been explored for for some time now particularly within the field like of fan studies um which looks at how fans yeah take an existing content and rework it for their autonomous desires 
So that is particularly useful for minority communities who don't see themselves re represented in the major uh, narratives or canons of uh, of life, but also, uh, you know, of, of productions, uh, films, etc. But then there's also the, like, non-productive aspects. Uh, for example... Um, wasting time reading fan fiction or, or wasting time writing fan fiction, particularly like, you know, do, when you're doing it when you're at work <laughs> in your office or something like that and, and reading fan fiction when you should be working. Um, I'm kind of interested in those aspects of fandom of being non-productive because they then somehow also become, you know, they open up a space for like fantasy and imagination within the normative structures of like work and capitalism and everything else. Um, so I think there's this interesting tension between what is productive and, 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 and non-productive in fandom uh, that I'm super fascinated by. And that's where the potential is. But just to say one thing about um, this idea of, of productivity or, or like, I think, you know, for me, it's about like the fact that fandom is um, produced out of like a love for something, right? Um, and that happens with, you know, within Larry Stylinson, for example, with the whole love for Larry Stylinson. But it's not about an intention to critique the One Direction band, right? It's not an option. It's not an. It's not about them fans parodying One Direction and taking the piss out of them. However, some of those readings of fan fiction can be seen to be, in some ways, uh, critiquing or mocking what the band is, right? Because it's presenting a different narrative. So what I'm interested in is how fandom forms a response that isn't a directly antagonistic response, but their response is a collective response done out of love in which we actually, like, in some ways kind of forget about the original content and just become involved and consumed in creating our own content and building our own worlds and narratives. Um, and for me, that's where fandom has its most political potential. And that can only happen by abandoning this idea of productivity at the same time <laughs> and by, you know, entering into this space of like fantasy and fiction it's only then when we when we escape from reality this is this is the value if you like of like escapism it's only when we escape from reality can we start to imagine new ones and that's happening right now you know we're we're in we're in a moment which is an escape from the realities that we lived in and suddenly this moment during lockdown is an extremely creative moment because we have to start to imagine other possibilities and ways to live so so really, the, the fan world should be taking a lead at this crucial time. Yeah, they've been doing this already for so long. So they're they're more than primed, you know. You said um, that actually fan culture has been really instrumental to driving popular culture and including that yeah. also been really influential in just driving the internet more generally. Yeah, I suppose if we go back to like the early days of the internet, you know, it's it's fan production that's pushed a lot of that forward. And if we look at, you know, I think it was in 2013 that the the laws for the the copyright and use of existing material on online and on YouTube, so much fan content had been created, so many fan videos 
uh, that were like parodies, for example, of music videos and things like that, that this pushed, you know, um, them to reconsider what the law needs to be. And they had to relax the laws around copyright in order to incorporate the amount of fan production and fan materials that were happening. So, you know, this is an interesting example of the power of fandom. You know, One Direction uh, became such a big phenom phenomenon due to the fact that they were the first boy band to start using Twitter. And Twitter gave fans instantly access to the, you know, the boys and the bands to their personal life to find out what they were having for breakfast, um, you know, when they woke up. And this kind of content is the stuff that fans are waiting for, right? Because it's like we we get a sense of intimacy through that. Um, and that's why, in a way, also One Direction has become like, uh, and Larry Stanson has been like, uh, a focus for my project because I was particularly interested in the fact that that band was the first to use Twitter um, and how that really propelled such an intense fandom in One Direction and how that made that band so successful as well. Like I run a seminar called Fans and Amateur Experts mm -hmm. um, at Santa Saint Martins um, with my students there. I always use the example of um, you know the Beatles fan fandom uh, and the Beatles being kind of one of the first boy bands. Uh, so the Beatles talk about how they stopped performing live because their fans screamed so loud. So if we're thinking about the power of fandom, so they would they would perform live concerts and because their fans would scream so loud, they actually couldn't be heard. So the fandom, you know, the fans are totally overpowering the artists in that moment and totally like upstaging them in some ways as well, which I find fascinating. But, you know, if any revolution is going to happen, it has to come from like, I think it has to come from like, you know, for me, fandom is interesting because it is predominantly uh, minority communities of women, queers, people of color. It has to come from there. So like, that's what's really fascinating for me is that also like, there's something that fans have been like unassuming figures for like revolution for so long. I think they're just seen to be, you know, across history as like mind mindless consumers, right? Theodore Adorno in his like book on mass culture in the eighties talked about fans being uh, mindless consumers and how this really ignores what fans actually do. Right. And that they actually have the potential to really have an impact uh, and change our, change our realities great end point Owen okay that's very okay. good um uh yeah no it's not something any interviewer wants to hear um, but I wasn't surprised when Owen told me he was unhappy about the way the conversation had gone um it's a sh in a way I'm just thinking like last week we had that juicy it's always the case isn't it it's like the first like ah this happens in interviewing. Some documentary directors and reporters I've worked with won't even speak to the person they're filming with beforehand in case it ruins on-camera spontaneity and genuine emotion. Is it literally like the process of fucking recording? You know, some of the bits that I'm telling, I'm, I'm aware that I'm, like, reenacting them. <laughs> but maybe that's the fun thing. Maybe I should embrace the the recreating and the redoing and, and maybe... And so we deceived ourselves. 
We talked as if we finished the interview, but left the recorder running, and our conversation ended up taking a more relaxed and intimate turn. And I guess I did want to yeah, make it as personal, not as personal as possible, but I did want to have some sort of personality in it, because I guess part of this is about understanding why someone, why an artist makes the work that they do, yeah. Yeah. and why what they're doing now might be a break from what they did before. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm re- I really appreciate that you asked the questions. Yeah, that you asked, you wanted to find out more about my personal relationship to it because that's something that I often really don't talk about with this work as well. So, you know, and like I think what it's been really generative for me having this conversation actually because I've just made this complete link with. You know, I've been talking about a lot about non-productivity and stuff, but just this, it's about a sense of feeling that I think I've been trying to conjure a lot in my work for the last two years with these hangouts. Um, And a few people have responded and said, oh yeah, it really reminds me of just like hanging out as a teenager kind of thing. This was the response that I got to it. And and I'm like, look, when you, you know, when you just asked me that, and I was like thinking about what it was to just like be like listening to music in your bedroom or whatever (laughs) it really was something about that but that that was like such a fertile time for like a queer person as well in terms of like you know all my fantasies were about how I was gonna create a future for myself that didn't exist already you know and it it was from like little bits that I'd see so you know I was very much into already at like 14 or 15 I watched things like Ibiza Uncovered on TV and I was like I can't wait to go can't wait to go clubbing right yeah um and I made like for my Welsh project for my GCSEs I made a whole portfolio called club culture and I was only I was like 15 or 16 years old it was called club culture and I'd cut out all these I used to buy like mix mag and stuff like that um, and cut out pictures of like drag queens and like people like high like dancing and like people in manumission having orgies <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was in Welsh. It was called Club Duwilliant. <laughs> and I was like, I look back and I'm like, my god, I was like already on it. <laughs> that's so much. Um, <laughs> that's so much sexier and more aspirational than um, furtively going up to your um, sister's room where there was this old, like, old little television and then I'm being, like, having read the, the read about the Brookside lesbian um, storyline, <laughs> like, <laughs> switching it on, watching it for one minute before, like, thinking your parents are going to come up and catch you, get it. And <laughs> just, like, making a, yeah, making a, a brilliant presentation about club culture in Ibiza is a bit, like, a bit more bit more imaginative (laughs) yeah I love all that stuff and also you know I think a lot about my experience of you know like I mean television and like what I would watch in my room like everything from like Eurotrash to the girly show um to like David Hoyle who was on like channel four you know in the like late 90s or whatever um I saw a lot of that stuff and that was that was all so inspirational for me. Like that was a huge inspiration because it was like, these were like snippets into like bits of like life beyond the normativity that I lived in. Right. So it was just like, wow. And you know, I, 
that is a process of embodiment and becoming as well. And I, I'm, I, I've written about this as well. And um, I've written something called uh, an article called Fictional Realness, which is about like, and I, I look back at basically the New York ball scene and, um, you know, where, where Vogue initiated and the ballroom where people would perform realness on the catwalk in different categories and how that is like becoming this thing, right? But how, and then, you know, I think that also happens in this kind of fan-like process also. It's also like a process in fandom of becoming. So, you know, I ended up without these like reference points that uh, like heterosexual people have, right? In the narratives that exist. I created my sense of self out of snippets from Ibiza Uncovered, Neurotrash, and then Queer as Folk, and Ju- Julian Clary. And like, you know, you've got all these bits that have suddenly become part of my, yeah, of, of what how I create and build my own sense of identity and Bjork and Alanis Morissette and like, you know, everyone else I was listening to back then and the Spice Girls or whatever, they're all in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, also, like, God, we just totally grew up at the same period, didn't we? So I'm like, We did. (laughs) But it was a good period, actually. I think that we're really lucky. Like, that was such an exciting time for pop culture. Um, And that's why I'm also really, you know, I'm... I mean, my work is really invested in pop culture because I really believe like pop culture is the thing that communicates with everyone. Right. And as much as I'm involved and interested in like the historical avant garde and everything, it's like pop culture, you know, and the, you know, and the stuff that's happening in pop culture is so fascinating and interesting. And like right now there is a lot of really interesting stuff happening out there like I just saw that like do you know Charlie XCX who's like you know the kind of more what the young bees are into but like she's in lockdown and she's just given herself the task on Twitter she said oh I've just given myself a task to create a new album it's going to be like nothing I've done before and I'm doing it on lockdown I'm doing it with everything all the materials I have here but I want collaborators brilliant so, you know, you have all her fans who make music themselves then just like posting on her Twitter being like, "Link, I've made this demo for you. Like, and suddenly this whole thing is happening. So there, it is really, it is also a fascinating time right now because of all that opportunity. But I think we had a much more like, yeah, that in a way I, I, I find it like we had in some ways a more solitary time but it was definitely much more physical and embodied whereas now all these young people they're constantly connected obviously through twitter and through instagram and everything else but they don't necessarily it's not necessarily like physically embodied in the same way you know because you don't you could be a fan of something today and not have to look like it as well i think because nobody's necessarily ever going to see you they don't have to live it right it doesn't have to become embodied in that way um, whereas, you know, I remember reading and I, I cut out ev- anything that was about Bjork. I cut out from the newspaper and kept it. Um, I recorded all the documentaries that were on the South Bank show and everything. And I still have them on VHS somewhere. But like, you know, even just the fact that I remember Bjork saying that one day she went to school um, just wearing her duvet because she didn't want to get out of bed. 
So she just wore her duvet and I found that so inspiring <laughs> as a teenager. I was just like, yes, <laughs> this is my icon. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, but that, you know, that is where we engage with, that is like the power of fandom as well in that sense. It's like... It gives you something to grip onto. It gives you some, it gives you a, some fragments to start building your own identity for sure. And that's definitely like, as a, all teenagers, but yes, as, of course, as queer teenagers, we, we maybe didn't know what we were reaching for, but you're just grabbing these fragments that sort of feel like they might be you. Uh, yeah. And then, but then when you get older and you have that freedom to start, when you stop getting to that, that freedom to actually build yourself, it's actually can be years before you actually get to really embody that. You still have to like, find those people and find those places and work actually to embody the identity that you feel that you are. Yeah, this makes total sense to why now I also wanted to kind of become a fan again because, you know, through my process of my PhD, I somehow had to become a bit of like a master in some ways of what I was doing uh-huh. and then the desire, you know, and then you suddenly like, okay, you're, you're there so I wanted to really re-engage that desire of what it means to be in a process of becoming and in a process of like mm. learning and, and you know. And I think that's what I want to be forever, actually. I want to yeah. always be a fan because the minute I stop being a fan and I'm like an accomplice and I'm, mm. then then I'm dead. Like then what else is there to you know, it's all about desire and I want to be able to shift and transform and to not be like, oh my God, I'm 40 years old. So I can't be inspired by something anymore. I want to be influenced by things um, and excited by things uh, always. That's cool. That's what it is, isn't it? It's like, that's what enables you to keep on actually, that's what enables you to keep making work and making work fresh and get, get stay enthused about things. It's like harvesting that energy, using that energy. I think for me, as much as like I find it really, there's an antagonism for me for going out filming or even going out doing in-person reporting. I'm always like, oh, I don't want to go out. Don't want to, <laughs> I never want to do it anymore. But then when I'm out in the field and I'm meeting new people and I'm interviewing them or I'm filming them, that's when I feel most energized. And when I come back from that, I feel more energized about my career. The more yeah, like yeah. distant I am, the more I'm in, in an office or in my room researching or just having phone calls or emails, like I'm too distant from the subjects that, that I'm making work about. You have to get your energy from your subject matter or from your process rather so yeah yes I have I get my energy from the process of it and also meeting new people that's something that really makes me alive um rather than like yeah at a certain point maybe some I think at a certain point at a certain age you're supposed to uh, not do the dirty work anymore. You're not supposed to get excited anymore. You're not. Supposed, I know, right? But that's the thing. A lot of people have said to me, you know, because they're like, "Why are you? You know, what? It isn't it like fa- being a fan? Like I was a fan when I was a teenager, but like the idea of being a fan." And I just always say, like, you know, it's not about becoming this like what what you think a fan is. It's just about like. In, 
keeping like a something alive that is about like a desire for or a curiosity for things um and i think a lot of people like older a lot of older people i think they just get to the stage where they don't want to be seen as still learning or like still they want to you know feel like they 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 have the knowledge already and i'm like i think we need to just also as like grown up people be more open to the fact that we're still in a process of learning how to do everything fuck's sake like we don't we don't know how everything works at all <laughs> The series was conceived and produced by me, Kat McShane. Editing was by Dan Bolger. Make sure to visit us on Instagram, where you can see artwork especially commissioned for the series. If you don't want to miss future shows, then please do subscribe. And if you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a rating. See you next time. <laughs>